Thank you, Matt. Guys, can we give a round of applause to God for what he is doing here? And thank him for Matt, Papa, and these guys right here. Uh, what's up, Impact? How are we doing? Everybody doing good? Really? Yeah, awesome. Okay, great. Well, my name is Jason Gasson. I had the privilege of being here a couple years ago. Is anybody in the house two years ago? Anybody been here for like multiple years? Okay, great. Man, awesome. It's, uh, it's great to be with you guys. I'm honored to be here. A uh, couple things you need to know about me. Number one, I'm a youth pastor, okay? I serve at a church in the Raleigh-Durham area called the Summit Church, and I've been at that church for almost nine years. And the reason I'm a youth pastor, I think I told you this last time I came here, is because I love teenagers, and I believe that King Jesus wants to unleash his glory on your generation to first of all see your heart transformed by his grace, and second of all see the world transformed through your obedience. And I believe he's going to raise up your generation to do it if we would begin to live our lives in a posture of open hands and obedience. And so that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to surrender my life tonight and to just proclaim the goodness of God to your generation and to those of you in Tennessee. Man, the reason I like coming here is because I'm sort of a redneck. We got any rednecks in the house? Really? We're in, come on. Okay, so that's actually the problem with y'all is you're all from Tennessee, so you're naturally born a redneck. Okay, that's like number one. Thanks, bro. I appreciate you. Um, you're naturally rednecks, okay? You don't even know it, right? You're in denial right now, all right? So uh, here, let me do a little test for you, okay? You like barbecue? All right, I had, uh, I, had, I had barbecue tonight for dinner. Phil's. Anybody like some Phil's barbecue? You like Bojangles? You like Chick-fil-A? That just means you're a Christian, okay? That's all that means. You're just a Christian, right? You're just a Christian, right? Um, man, so I, I like all those things. I like to hunt. I like to fish. I love NASCAR, all right? Yes, all right? I, like, I get excited coming here because you have the pinnacle of motorsports right down the street from here, okay? Bristol Motor Speedway. And I hear that you're turning it into a football field. Is that true? Yeah? Okay. Rocky Top? We got any Rocky Toppers in the house? Okay. All right. We got two or three of you. I'm a big, I'm a big time, I'm a big time NASCAR fan. My dad actually drives a race car on the weekends at like local racetracks. Okay. So that like just through DNA, that automatically makes me a redneck. All right. And I actually taught, I'm not making this up. I really did. I taught my kids how to count to four like this. One, two, Dale, four. Okay. One, two, Dale, four. Y'all know who Dale is, right? One, Dale, God rest his soul. All right. One, two, Dale, four. That's how we rolled in the Gasson clan. Hey, I want to introduce you guys to my family. Can I do that? Um, I, I have a wife named Katie, and I have three kids, all right? Uh, my oldest is a son. He's my son, my firstborn. His name is Holt. Uh, he's seven years old. That's Holt right there, okay? Holt, um, Holt's holding that trophy because that's the first place trophy that they won in baseball, all right? That's a lot of hard work that goes in to win in first place. We got anybody that's ever won first place, all right? Anybody in here? Okay, is there, uh, is there anybody in here that just got a trophy for participating? All right, no, man. Come on, man. There's always losers, all right? Always losers. Don't kick me out of here. I want to come back. So that's Holt. Um, and then I have a daughter named Annie. She's almost five. This is Annie. There she is right there. That's Annie, okay? Um, I, I really, I'm, I'm serious. Having a daughter changed my life. I think I said this to you a couple of years ago when I was here. But um, having a daughter also made me realize I know how to rip a man's Adam's apple out of his own body, Okay? Uh, because I'm super protective dad, right? And so dudes, I'm just telling you right now, you better watch out. You just better watch out because that girl that you got the eyes for or that you think is beautiful, that's somebody's little girl. And her dad has Googled how to kill you with his bare hands, all right? <laughs> I've done it. I'm sure they've done it too. All right. And then I have a two-year-old son. His name is Parks. This is Parks. But I say, hey, Parks. 
That's actually the direct TV kid from a commercial. Have you guys ever seen that guy? That's actually not Parks. Um, I've actually shown that picture a couple times, and uh, people don't really know. They're like, oh my God, like that's, dude, your kid is ugly. Your kid is ugly. I mean, he kind of looks like you a little bit, right? All right, that's not Parks. This is Parks right there. This is, there we, there he is right there. That's Parks. That's Parks. He's, uh, uh, Parks is crazy. I'm learning that about Parks. He's coming into his own. He's a little psycho Billy Ninja on crack, all right? So he, uh, he grabs his sister's hair and drags her around the living room like this, okay? He, uh, his older brother like, likes to like, hug and kiss him and get all, and he just rips his eyeballs out, just gouges them, and then he laughs while he does it, okay? Which means he's possessed by a demon. That's, that's what I believe wholeheartedly. Um, and then this is my family as a whole. My wife, Katie, with my family. There we go. That's me right there. That's our family right there. And that's the look I often get from my kids from Parks right there. Like, Dad, what in the world is wrong with you, man? Unbutton that top button. What is your problem? I was trying to be cool. I was trying to be cool. All right. Hey, this weekend we're talking about light shining, right? We're talking about the light that shines. And last night I heard that Eric Reed dropped gospel bombs in this place, all right? Eric's an incredible pastor and communicator of God's word. And, man, he really unpacked for us what it looks like to be covered, to be exposed in the light before God and then covered by his grace. So tonight what we're going to do is we're going to look in the Gospel of John and then also dig a little bit into Matthew as well at a man by the name of John the Baptist. And tonight what we're going to do is we're going to look like, we're going to look at what it looks like to have the light of the Gospel shining through us as we go. To have the light of the gospel shining through us. You know, it, it, it takes character. It takes a, a man and a woman of character and integrity to allow the gospel to shine through you. And John the Baptist gives us a, a great picture of what a man's life and a woman's life looks like of someone who would be obedient to let the gospel shine through you. Now, um, John was a different creature, okay? He was a different bird. And we're going we're gonna to see that a little bit here when we unpack it out of Matthew uh, chapter 3. But... Um, he stood out a little bit from culture. He, he didn't really fit the cultural norm, much like a middle school boy, all right? Um, middle school boys, uh, man, you struggle to find your place in society. Um, you go through nine different identity crises, all in the sixth grade, all right? When I was in sixth grade and I showed up to middle school, is sixth grade middle school here? Is that where, is it, or is it starting in seventh grade? Sixth grade, okay. So that's where it started for me was in sixth grade. I showed up to, to sixth grade. And everything that I'd ever known going, uh, like, man, just grabbing hold of my life at that point was completely tossed out. Like, I, everything I'd ever known for my norm for my life just disappeared when I hit puberty, okay? My voice started cracking. It started getting a little bit deeper. I wasn't really sure what was going on. My style changed, okay? Uh, I showed up one day as a jock. Like, man, I was, like, rocking all the jock gear. I had, you know, what I guess now would be, like, the Under Armour gear, and the, the high sock, actually, I think I'm actually wearing no socks right now. Like the high, you know, high, like mid-calf high socks, you know. I had the flat bill. It wasn't as cool back then, okay. I didn't have a flat bill back then. Um, and then the next week I showed up and I was like a punk rocker. I was like, man, that, 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 that's, that's gone, right? That's gone, that's gone. That's, that's not who I am. Next week I'm like totally into like totally different music. And my hair what used to be parted right here on the side, combed over. Now it's like parted down the middle and I got like the tight, you know, undercut thing going on. And... Um, and then the next week, man, I showed up and I'm like super goth, right? I'm like dark on. And that's all in like a month, y'all. That happened in the course of a month. Man, like we're all on this search and, and we're all looking to stand out in some capacity. I was hoping to find that one thing that would make me stand out among the rest of all my peers. 
whether it was my style or my friends or the people that I run with, I was, I was looking for a life that would be significant, a life that would, a life that would be impressive. How is it that you define the impressive and significant life? Don't answer me, but maybe just think about it right in your seat. How do you define a life of significance? Is it um, the amount of success that you have in the classroom? Some of y'all are like, no, I do my homework at lunch. But some of y'all, man, you stay up till 3 a.m., high school students, hoping to get into that college because you're working really hard, hoping to find significance in life through an education. Is it through the amount of likes that you get on Insta, right? And I've got 952 friends on Insta, and I know six of them, right? I know six of them, but I have 38 likes in like 28 seconds, right? And if you're constantly hitting refresh, like pulling down on your iPhone to see how many likes you got in the last 30 seconds on Insta, it might think, you, might, you might be led to believe that that's where you find significance, right? That you find worth and you, you find value there. Or maybe if you're a Christian, you think that like the impressive, significant life is someone who goes on a lot of mission trips. You know, the reality is, is all of those things actually have a hint of goodness to them. Right? We all long to be in really good friendships with other people because we were created to be in community and to know and to love and to be loved by other people. We were all created to use our mind for the glory of God, but it just got skewed somewhere along the way. And you were created for God's mission, right? But what's happened is that we have taken something that God has said is good and we've twisted it. And really, that's the story of Scripture. That's the story from Genesis to Revelation, is that our lives are twisted. John the Baptist gives us, I think, a great example of a man who lived a life that, by most of our measures, as if we're putting it like the the filter of Christianity on him, and we're putting the gospel on him, we're like, man, John the Baptist lived a significant life. He played an impressive part in the kingdom of God, advancing things forward. But he did it a little bit differently, and there's some things that he did that I really want us to look at tonight that I think are at the heart of what God is asking each one of us to do if we're going to allow the light of the gospel to shine through us everywhere that we go. So here's what we're going to do. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, all right? I would love it. It'll be on the screen for you, but I would love it if you would open up your Bibles. If you got the Bible in front of you, I'm actually reading from the NIV. And so if you have your Bible in front of you, go ahead and open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We're going to be in verse Six, I'm going to read chapter one, verse six through eight, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 19. And you got it? Say, yep. Seven of you. I'll wait 10 more seconds. John chapter one. All right, here we go. John chapter one, verse six. And if you haven't got it, it's still up on the screen for you, okay? John chapter one, verse six. There came, there came a man who was sent from God. Pause. You got a man named John who had a mission from God who was sent by God to the world for a specific purpose. You need to know that before you go any further in this text, okay? Time back in. Here we go. All right. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Let's skip down in verse 14. The word, uh, 19, I'm sorry, verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony 
when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. People were starting to hear about this guy named John and the ministry that he was having. Word was starting to get out about him and people, like, people were being baptized by him. He was preaching something that they hadn't heard. And people were starting to ask questions. And so this is what he says, verse 20. He did not fail to confess, but he confessed freely when he was asked by them. He said, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Dude, who are you? If you're not Elijah, then tell me who you are. Tell me what it is that you're doing here. Um, I get that look a lot from some of my friends, like my, my son's friends that show up in my, in my front yard. I'm like, who is this kid? Holt, who is this kid? I've never seen him before. There's 48 seven-year-olds running around in my front yard in my driveway on a Wednesday afternoon. I'm not even kidding. I'm like, who are half these kids? And I make him give an account for every single one of them that are there. Because I don't know who half these kids are. They could be selling drugs, seven-year-olds, right? I don't know. And this is what, this is what John said. You're like, seven-year-olds doing drugs? That's a joke, okay? This is what John said in chapter 1, verse 23. He replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet. I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for John. No. I am the voice of the one calling in the desert to make straight the way of who? Okay, all right. It's on the screen. It's not rocket science, okay? To make straight the way of who? The Lord. Okay. That's some pretty significant statements that he's making. And we're going to unpack this tonight as we go through it. But to get a little bit more into who John is, let's actually go back to Matthew chapter 3. Okay? Matthew chapter 3. We're going to go back to John, I promise. But Matthew chapter 3 gives us a little bit more description of who this, this guy is and why people were probably starting to ask a little bit of questions about him. All right? Matthew chapter 3. Just going to read the first four verses. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea, saying these words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is the one who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight the path for him. And now I love this. They give a description of John. Identity crisis time here, okay, you ready? John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Okay, a, a little bit of background for here, okay? When you get to Matthew chapter 3, you need, you need to understand some context of what's going on, all right? At this point in the Gospel of Matthew, okay, that's one, two, three chapters, all right? Three chapters into the book. You need to know a couple, couple things. There are 30 years of separation between chapter 2 and chapter 3. 30 years difference between chapter 2 and chapter 3. One sentence, 30 years. All right? And then most importantly, before you get to Matthew chapter 3 where John is making statements, a prophetic statement, it had been over 400 years since the people of God had heard a word from a prophet of God. 
John the Baptist showing up in Matthew chapter 3 resounds a prophetic word from God. And the people had not heard from God, from a prophet of God, in over 400 years. Okay, if I miss a sermon from my pastor, like from last weekend, like I can go online and like watch it. I can watch it on video. If you guys are really itching to get a sermon, you can go on podcast or, man, you can like Google something and find a cool pastor that you want to listen to. You can do it like that. These people had nothing. They had not heard a word from the Lord, from a prophet sent on behalf of God in over 400 years. All right, let's just sit still for a second, okay? No talking, no moving. You guys ready? Let's just do complete silence. You guys ready? Go. Okay, you guys are waiting for me to say something right now, aren't you? 15 seconds. 15 seconds. You're waiting for the preacher to say something about God. 400 years of silence. It was a deafening silence. White noise, static, nothing. But then the deafening silence of heaven was about to be broken with the thundering voice of God through a man by the name of John the Baptist. And what you'll notice is that to proclaim, listen, church, To proclaim the voice of God and the words of God to a deaf world is going to take some serious boldness. And God wants to raise you up to be thundering voices of his grace and his glory everywhere that you go. He wants to do it with your actions. He wants to do it with your life. And he wants to do it with your mouths, with the things that you say. You cannot separate those two. Great statement, but where in the world do I start as a teenager or as an adult? I'm glad you asked that question. I'm going to give you three points tonight, okay? Three points of what it looks like for us to be available, to be used by God, to see his light shine through us. To resound the thundering voice of God in a deaf generation. Number one. It would mean that you and I would have to stand up and live lives of non-conformity. Non-conformity. Okay, did you read about John the Baptist? Camel hair? Locusts? All right, homeboy was a little bit different. Okay? Some of y'all are different. You're just weird. Okay? And you can't blame your weirdness on Jesus. That's not what we're talking about, okay? We're not talking about like being weird for Jesus, all right? We're talking about a man whose life literally was countercultural. It was non-conforming. And listen to me, listen. Some of you guys are experiencing this right now in your schools. You, you actually resonate with, with this in a lot of ways. People looked at John and said, man, that guy, the things that he is saying and the things that he is doing, his outward appearance and the inward posture of his heart go completely against anything we've ever seen or heard. It's not what everybody else is doing, and I don't like it. So much so that the priest and the religious leaders sent people to check in on what this guy was doing. When you are not conforming to culture, people are going to take notice. And you know what? They're not going to like it. They're not going to like it. 
They're not going to like what you have to say. They're not going to like the way that you're living. Y'all listen, conformity is a slippery slope. Conformity is a slippery slope that will creep in on you and destroy you. I mean, in John chapter 15, verse 19, he would go on to say, Jesus would go on to say, he would say, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, Christian, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Can can I just build off of something that Matt talked about? We, we, we get these ideas of what it means to be a Christian as a way of like conforming to the rest, of the rest of the world. Like God loves you, be happy, things are good. It's Hallmark Christianity. It's as the deer painted for the water on my coffee mug. It's all my cool t-shirts. It's all of those things. We've actually created a subculture that we're trying to conform to. But you know what Jesus says? This may, this may be the statement you need to hear. If you are going to be a Christian, you are going to be a young man or woman that is going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus every day of your life, you need to know that people aren't going to like it. You know how I know that? I'm the only Christian in my home. I gave my life to Christ at an event when I was in seventh grade, just like this. I had the hots for a girl. Like, I thought I was going to marry her, but she had never talked to me, (laughs) okay? She invited me to come to this event at a church. And this guy that was going to be there used to work with a football team for the Florida State Seminoles, and she said there was going to be pizza. I'm like, pizza, football, and girls. I'm in. My parents let me go. I showed up to the event. Gave my life to Christ that night because for the first time I heard a message that was counter everything I'd ever heard. It's the first time I'd ever actually stepped foot in a church as a seventh grader living in North Carolina. Imagine that. Jesus saved me. But you know what? You know where he had placed me? In a home with parents that don't love Jesus. And now I'm stuck in a hard place. I'm in a home that God's put me in where I'm called to live in obedience and faith to my parents. And it took me a long time to get that. But now I'm called to this new way of life. And as I'm starting to pursue this new way of life, some of the things that my parents were teaching me, I, I just didn't see it lining up with the Bible anymore. And my, my relationship started to get, even in my own home. And then the circle of friends that I was running with in middle school things started to change in the relationships with people that I had. I didn't want to do the things that they were doing anymore. I didn't want to say the things that they were saying. I didn't want to partake in the things that they were partaking in anymore. God had gripped my heart and he began to change my life and I no longer could conform to the way that I used to live. Listen, conformity will kill your walk with Jesus. And it creeps in, and you don't even know that it's there. Listen, conformity looks okay from a distance. I, I actually told this story to, um, to our students at our church a couple of years ago. There's a story of a woman who, um, she had a, a snake, a pet snake. Okay, uh-uh. All right, let's not do that. She had a pet python snake. Uh-uh. All right. I don't know what the python's name is, so we're just going to call him Monty. All right, so... 
Monty the Python. That was adult swim time for you adults out there, okay? And um, she got really comfortable with the snake. Like she fed it. She bought it when it was a baby. She fed it. It was in the aquarium. And it started to grow. He went from being a foot and a half to two feet to three feet to four feet. And, you know, every once in a while she'd take the snake out and she'd let him slither around in the kitchen and all that stuff. And one day Monty got too big for his tank and so she didn't want to go buy a new one. So she just says, ah, you know what, I'm just going to let Monty roam free in the home. Well, why? <laughs> Some of y'all are going to have nightmares tonight right now, right? Just wait, it gets better. She starts to let the snake roam around in the home a little bit, and she gets used to him being outside of his tank. She feeds him, and you know what? She starts to get really accustomed to having him around, watching TV, sitting on the couch, eating popcorn together. She decides to let Monty get in bed. And so Monty would actually sleep curled up next to her. About eight years later, Monty starts losing weight. You know, everything was good. Monty on the outside was great. And she noticed that Monty was starting to lose a little bit of weight. And she started to get upset. And she started to get nervous and sad. And um, so she, uh, she wakes up one morning. And uh, she thinks, this is it. You know, I don't know how long pythons are supposed to live, but surely he's dying. And she wakes up one morning, and he's no longer curled on the pillow next to her. He's actually laying lengthwise next to her. So she's like, oh, man, he's dead. Right, snakes aren't supposed to die. He's dead. So she takes him, throws him in her truck, because that's what women drive that have snakes, okay? They drive trucks, all right? Threw him in the back of the truck, head down to the vet, came in and said, here's the deal. Monty's been losing weight. He sleeps in the bed with me. And the doctor's like, what? And she's like, he's been losing weight over the past week. He looks really sick. I think he's going to die. This morning when I woke up, I found him laying next to me. And the doctor's eyes got really big and his face got pale. All the color went out of it, and he said, just repeated back to her what she had said. He said, all of these, th what you're saying, this is what happened. She said, yes, why? She said, he said, you cannot take Monty home with you today. We're going to have to kill him here. She started crying. Why? Why? He said, Monty was not sick. He was starving himself for a big meal. He was preparing his body for a big meal. And this morning, when you woke up and you looked next to you, you need to know something. You were the meal he was sizing up for. Okay, how many of y'all just got creeped out? Okay, that story's actually not true. Not a true story at all, okay? <laughs> got ya! <laughs> not a true story. I Googled that several years ago, okay? <laughs> I, I couldn't keep going, all right? But here's what you need to know. All right, here we go. Roll back in here. Ready? Here we go. Listen. Conformity to the world. Listen, church. Listen, listen, listen. Lean back in right here with me just for a sec. Conformity to the world looks okay from a distance for a while. But when you start to get in bed with it, it will absolutely destroy you. When you start to conform to the ways and the patterns of the world, you are no longer allowing the light of Jesus to shine through you. You're actually suppressing it. You're conforming to the world that he has called you out of. He has rescued you and me from the dominion of darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. And conformity with the world, friendship with the world, is running away from the cross of Christ and back to the place that he rescued you from. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, the, the NLT, the New Living Translation, actually says this quite nice. And so I figured I'd read it to you in this. He says, don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, 
But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know what God's will for you is, which is good and pleasing and perfect. To be someone who allows the light of Jesus to shine through you, you are going to have to be non-conforming to the culture. You're going to have to stand up. You're going to have to stand out. In fact, if you continue to read in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, you're going to see that not conforming to the culture for John the Baptist would actually cost him his life, his head on a platter. We talk a lot about being on mission for Jesus. We talk a lot about what it looks like to, to live for him. You need to know that it is not safe. Safety is found in conformity, but Jesus calls you out of it. Point two. We allow the light of Jesus to shine through us when we posture our lives in humility. We find ourselves in a place, a posture of humility. Let me go back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Just read John's statements here. John chapter 1 verse 19. John says these words. People are asking him questions. Who are you? Okay, you guys, before I, before I even read this statement, a lot of us, when we have a crowd start to follow us and they start to ask who we are, a lot of us think this is what I've been waiting for my whole life, to be noticed, to have the acceptance and popularity of my peers. We think we've made it, man. Like, I made it to the stage, bro. I get to preach. I get to sing. I get to lead. But when John the Baptist starts getting a following and then he's confronted with his identity, I love what he does with this. Chapter 1, verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask who he was. He did not fail to confess, but he confessed freely. I am not the Messiah. I am not Jesus. I am not the Christ. Then who are you? Are you Elijah, one of the other great prophets? <laughs> I am not. Are you the prophet? No. Then who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. Who, who, what do you say about yourself? It says, I am the voice of the one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. What you and I are going to have to realize with our lives, and this is something that I battle every single day, is we are going to have to learn what it means to place ourselves in second place to posture our lives in humility, to not elevate ourselves to a place of glory, but to reflect that glory away from ourselves back to the one who matters more than we could even fathom. That, that is exactly, okay, that is exactly what John the Baptist does when he is confronted with his success, when he is confronted with his popularity. Who are you? Are you the one that people have been waiting for? He's like, that's not me, John mounted a powerful assault on his own self by reflecting glory away from himself back to the one who was to come. When you read the scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we get a picture that, that all of this life, y'all listen. When you read, when you open up the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 all the way to the end in Revelation, you see that all of life is pointing from this day where you are right now to the day when we'll be with him. We'll be with King Jesus forever. Everything is pointing. Listen, everything in your life is pointing to that day. 
when all of us as, as Christians, as Revelation says, are gathered around the throne in a place of humility, honoring the one who deserves all the attention and glory. That means all of life should be spent moving glory away for ourselves, setting our hearts on what is to come, pointing it all back to the one who matters, Jesus. John mounted assault on his pride from the get-go. He would not allow pride to, to creep in and grab hold of his heart and chase after success and fame. And listen, God and his goodness towards us keeps us from, from a life as Christians of prolonged self-indulgence. You guys, I can't tell you how often pride creeps in my life every day, every hour. We have to be intentional, okay? We have to be intentional about dying to ourselves and shining the glory that we think should come to us back to Jesus. Spurgeon, who's one of my favorite preachers, okay? I love to read his sermons. I love to read his books. He says this about pride. He says, no matter how dear you are to God, You are loved by God. You know that, right? You are loved dearly by God, so much so that when you were in your place of sin and separation, he sent his son to rescue you in your place of rebellion. That's love. He says, no matter how dear you are to God, if pride is harbored in your spirit, he will whip it out of you. They that go up in their own estimation must come down again by his discipline. Have you ever experienced the loving, gracious, disciplining hand of God? I have. Where I've elevated myself. Listen, guys, pride in its essence is this. There is someone who is seated on the throne. And when we live lives of pride, what we're saying is, I'm the one that wants to be seated there. And you know what Jesus does? You know what God does? He laughs. He's like, ha ha, that's my throne. And in fact, in the New Testament, Peter would tell us that God opposes the proud. Okay, that in the Greek actually means this, that God stands in opposition to those who live lives and up, upright lives in their own esteem. They make much of themselves. God says, you want to try to walk to me? Step and find out what happens. The creator and sustainer of the universe says, you will not get my glory. That glory belongs to him And to him alone. There is nothing into which the heart of man, Spurgeon would go on to say, so easily falls as pride. And yet there is no more vice which is more frequently, more emphatically, and more eloquently condemned in Scripture. Pride is a thing which should be so unnatural to us because we have nothing in our lives to be proud of. You guys, you realize how easy self-centeredness comes to each one of us. Um, let me, my pastor does this illustration. I, I love it. And it actually, it actually helps me a lot because I struggle with this. Um, let's just say you took a group photo with your friends. Okay. Picture it. You guys got it. And you Snapchatted it. All right. To your buddies, or you put it on Instagram or Facebook. You don't use Facebook. Your moms use Facebook. You're off of Facebook, right? All right. So you got a group of, you got a, a group picture with your friends. How do you determine the quality of that picture? By how good you look. Fair? Anybody? Can anybody agree with that, right? Everybody, yes, I see that hand, girl. Okay, all right. You take that picture and you judge the quality of that picture 
by how bad or how good you're smiling. Naturally, that's the place that I go to as well. We go right for ourselves. And if we're not up to a standard that we think we should be, we're like, don't send it. Don't post it. Don't put it up. Self-centeredness, pride, elevating ourselves is so natural to us. Because it's the heart of what got us in this mess to start with. That we were created to worship and to love and obey someone outside of ourself and his name is God the Father, Yahweh. But pride got us into this mess where we said, God, you've given us some things that we, one thing that we cannot do. We cannot eat of that tree, but yet, ah, we're going to take it for ourselves. And then when sin enters the world, what you start to see all throughout Scripture is all the glory that was supposed to be going up in the lives of God's people oftentimes got skewed and they tried to bring it back to themselves. You know what's, what's tricky about pride and living lives of humility is oftentimes we don't even know that we're living boastful, proudful lives. But everybody else knows all right, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You know that guy in your class, that dude on your team, that girl in your school, at your work, like, oh my gosh, they're the most prideful person in the world. It's like everybody else sees how proud those people are except for them. I read a story one time of a, a, a guy, a pastor who wrote a book, and he tells a story about a guy who shows up in a bagel shop, okay? He's got a suit on. He's obviously going to a nice meeting, maybe an important interview. He sits down, he has his bagel, and he's sitting there by himself, and he he gets up and he walks out, but as he's walking out, the guy sitting in the bagel shop notices that the man in the suit has this big glob of cream cheese in his mustache, okay? First of all, he had a mustache. That's a problem, all right? Now, I'm just joking. If you have a mustache, it's cool, unless you're in seventh grade, all right? <laughs> Shave that thing, dude. I promise. It's worth it. And the guy, the guy thought, man, I wonder if that guy showed up to that important business meeting with a big glob of cream cheese in his mustache or if somebody actually had the audacity to call him out on it. What's crazy about pride is everyone else around you sees it except for you. And this is why we need the body of Christ. If we're going to be the church, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, making the light of Jesus shine, we need to call out sin in each other's lives. We need to call out the things. Man, listen, I think you're, I think you're being proud in this area, and here's why. Because I feel like you're, you're bringing glory to yourself and not reflecting it back to the one. Listen, guys, pride wilts in the presence of Jesus. If you want to live a life of humility, you know where you find yourself? Every day at the foot of the cross, right here. Because it's at the foot of the cross that you look up and you say, Oh my God, I am a wretched, condemned sinner that God would send his son to hang right there on my behalf. What good am I of myself? What good do I have except for the man that's hanging on that cross that would one day go into the tomb and that three days later would kick death in the teeth and resurrect and sit down at the right hand of the throne of God? When you place yourself at the foot of the cross and look at Jesus... Your pride suddenly starts to get destroyed. Let no man boast of himself except for the cross of Christ, the New Testament would tell us. That is your boast. That's my boast. Not me, but Jesus. John the Baptist got it. Do we? What are the areas of our lives 
that we're pointing the glory back to ourselves rather than pointing it up to Jesus. Think about it. Point number three. You want the light of Jesus to shine through you? Can't conform to the patterns of the world? Live a life of humility. I'm not the light, but there is one who's coming who is. The third thing is be available. Posture your life in a place of availability. Now, I keep saying that word posture because I think it's important. Because your posture says everything. You know that, right? Like right now, some of y'all are leaned back on your seat like this. You're like, okay, I get it, bro, right? 40 minutes later, you're like, dude, shut up. When you, when you, show, up to, when you show up to worship and you sit, stand here with your arms crossed, you know what your posture is saying is not interested. But when you start to posture yourself, your body, in a place of openness, all of a sudden you start to feel freedom. Posture says a lot, Right? That's why you hear a lot of times, you hear pastors, say, pastors will say, hey, man, can you just lean, just lean in, right? Like when my son leans into instruction that I'm giving him, when he's leaning, I know he's listening. I know he wants to hear it. How you posture yourself before the Lord is important. How you posture your life every single day is important. Are you posturing your life in a way of, of being available? John the Baptist had a mission. And he actually knew it from the get-go. He quoted it from Isaiah. I am the one whose mission has been sent by God to make straight the way for the Lord. And his life was lived in such a way to be available when the timing was right. What's the posture of your availability right now? Is it God, one day, one day, I think you're probably going to call me, like, to live a life overseas. But right now... Right now, I'm really not that interested. But one day, when I get to college, I'm going to live for you. And then when I graduate from college, I'm going to be living a life on mission, and it's going to be awesome. Is that the posture that you're living? You're forsaking the ministry that God has given you today for the idea of ministry later? That's not availability. That's a life that lives a life of, of, of closed hands. Like, God, not now, maybe later. Maybe. You know, in... You look at John's life, his life was all about preparing the way for Jesus in a world full of darkness. And as Christians, that's exactly what we are called to do as well. To posture our life in such a way to be available, to thunder the grace and the glory of God, to be light into a dark and deaf world. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verse 38, it says, Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to throw out laborers into the harvest field. Are you posturing yourself in such a way, the Greek tells us, literally, it's a throwing out. It's a being available to be sent out by God. Are you willing to step into your school on Monday morning, to step into your workplace on Monday morning and say, God, today... I'm not going to conform to the pattern of the world. I'm going to live lives of humility at the foot of the cross. It's you today, Jesus. It's not me. And I'm going to be available for what you have for my life. That is what God is after. He's after your obedience. He's after the posture of your heart. And he wants you to be obedient. 
don't grab hold of the things that you think are going to bring you glory. Those things are going to die and be burned up, but the eternal glory belongs to him. Live for that. Live for it. You want to be used by God? He has to change your heart first. Right now, if you would, just every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around. I'm going to ask you this question. Have you ever surrendered your life at the foot of the cross and said, there is no way I can earn my way to you by my works because my works are useless. My trying, my doing, my thinking, pointless. There's only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ, the Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever would believe in him, place yourself at the foot of the cross and cry out, it's because of my sin that you hang there. My pride, my desire to live for self, my rebellion against my heavenly Father that created me to conform to His image, but yet I've spent my whole life conforming to the pattern of the world. Jesus calls you to the foot of the cross and He says, confess that He is Lord. That He is the only way. No man enters the kingdom of God upright in his own pride. Carrying your cross that Jesus died on is the posture of every Christian. Right where you are tonight, if you've never believed the truth of the gospel, that is you were condemned to die in your sin. The wrath of God was on you. But Jesus fully absorbed every ounce of that wrath on the cross on our behalf, on your behalf. That if we would believe in him, we would confess that he is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him up from the dead. Salvation belongs to you. Maybe right now in your seat where you are, if the Spirit of God is working in you. Maybe you just cry out and call out to Him, Father, I confess my sin. It starts with my pride, my rebellion against you. My life has been about elevating my glory, but tonight I see yours. I confess, Jesus, that you are Lord, that you died on the cross for my sin tell me that if I would believe and I would hold fast to that word, salvation is mine. Thank you for saving me. I want to ask you a question with nobody looking around tonight. If you've received Jesus, you've already done it, you've already believed on him, would you do me a favor just right where you sit? No one's looking. Would you just put your hand up right where you are? Don't do it because your neighbor's doing it. You've already done it. This has already happened. You're not wanting to come down and just put your hand up, hold it up high, hold it up really high. All right, community group leaders, look at me. No one else looking around, keep your hand up high, keep it up high. I want you right now, right where you are, to grab the students that are sitting near you or the adults that are near you, and I want you to take them, and I want you to go outside in the lobby. We've got some people ready to, keep your hand up. Listen, this is not a scary thing, it's a beautiful thing for you to walk in obedience. Jesus has already saved you. We want to help you take the step to follow him every step of the way. Just right now, leaders, go ahead, stand up, grab your students. You know who they are. Go ahead, right now. Nobody, nobody looking around except for leaders. Grab your students right where you're at. Grab them and walk with them outside. Right now, you go right out the back. Our leaders are ready to talk to you. Keep your hand up. 
There's a whole bunch of students on my left, your right, that have their hands up. Adults, would you just take them with you and go and sit down and walk them through the gospel and help them to understand what they've just believed and the beauty that is Jesus? Students, listen, God, God wants to use you, but he wants to transform your heart first. He wants to see you grow more into his likeness. He wants to see that light, the light of Jesus, come alive in your heart. And when you posture yourselves in a place of humility and be available, you allow the light of Jesus to be used through you as you go. So God, tonight in this place, we give you praise and honor and glory for what you've done. I believe, Father, that you have a great work that you want to continue to do this week. So Lord, we, we just surrender with open hands and we say it's yours. We are yours. Use us. Help us to die to ourselves and elevate your glory and not ours. We want to live lives at the foot of the cross. And we want to take up that cross daily no matter how bad it hurts. We know that's what you've called us to do. Help us to walk in faith every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.